Many moons ago, when the world was young and heroes walked the earth, there was born the History Podcast. And in this world, there was the Beeb. There was Lars Brownworth and a bloke called Mike Duncan, and we heard Mike and knew he was good. And so was spawned a new generation, wherein I was inspired by Robin Pearson, who picked up the mantle of the Roman Empire in Byzantium. Robin, I'm glad to say, is still going strong, is still producing magnificent history and entertainment, and here is a message from him. Hello everyone, this is Robin Pearson from the History of Byzantium podcast. It seems like you enjoy your history recounted to you by an erudite, funny Englishman. Well, I am also an Englishman. And if you like a bit of Roman history, then come join me for a thousand-year epic of incredible highs and devastating lows. Check out The History of Byzantium wherever you get your podcasts, or go to thehistoryofbyzantium.com. For now, back to David. Life is full of awesome what-ifs, and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at UH1.com. Hello and welcome to the History of England, episode 33, Anarchy 2, Matilda's Big Chance. By the end of 1139, Stephen pretty much knew what he was dealing with, and Matilda pretty much knew the extent of her support too. Stephen could count on the broad support of the vast majority of the English nobility. Matilda had a clutch of lords supporting her, many of whom were actually family. Robert of Gloucester and Reginald of Cornwall were family, plus they were joined by Miles of Gloucester, Brian Fitzcount, and she also had Nigel of Ely on her side, but before the end of 1139, Stephen had thrown Nigel out of Ely, and the result was confined back to the south-west of England, centred on Bristol, with a salient as far east as Wallingford. The anarchy is as clear a demonstration of the nature of medieval warfare as you get. With a couple of exceptions, it's a war of attrition, a long, drawn-out affair of siege and counter-siege, where more territory changes hands through shifting alliances than through direct warfare. At the start of 1140 then, neither side would have been entirely happy or entirely discouraged. Stephen's job was to set about reducing all those councils that were held against the royal authority, while Matilda's was to consolidate the area she held and get a few more barons to defect. Stephen also sought to mobilise his own supporters by granting them new titles, based on land that had been seized by the opposition. So, for example... He made Waller and Beaumont the Earl of Worcester. Since Worcester had already been taken by the rebels, he'd have to go and make the title a reality himself. He then did the same thing in making Robert Beaumont the Earl of Hereford. Both the Beaumont brothers were of course very much his loyal supporters. So he also uses the granting of earldoms to tie in men that he's a bit worried about, because they hold vital positions, and he thinks they might be just a little bit wobbly. Chief amongst those is Geoffrey de Mandeville, a man of great power in and around London. So Geoffrey's made Earl of Essex. But 1140 is basically a story of deadlock. Stephen had built two countercastles around Wallingford as he attempted to capture the eastern salient, but then charged down to Cornwall and set about recovering the castles he'd lost through the revolt of Reginald and a man called William Fitzrichard. 
and he was basically successful in doing so. He also began the policy that becomes very widespread in the rest of the Civil War of setting up his local man to prosecute the war on his behalf. Our man in Cornwall is Alan de Pontheve, and with Stephen's help he held a lot of Cornwall by the end of the year. Meanwhile the Angevins ravaged the land around Bath as they sought to kick out any remaining royal supporters in their power base and they took a couple of castles and also managed to break the siege at Wallingford. But 1140 is a year that doesn't really go anywhere for the main protagonists. Henry of Blois, as Bishop of Winchester and the Papal Legate, does run around trying to get everyone to talk to each other, be nice, and find a way to negotiate their way out of the conflict. He manages to get all the parties to agree to a peace conference, and in the finest traditions of peace negotiations, talks about talks were held at Bath between the representatives of the main parties. Robert of Gloucester for the Empress, Queen Matilda, Henry of Blois, and Archbishop Theobald for Stephen. Sadly, it doesn't go well, and it broke up in a welter of mutual mudslinging. In September, Henry launched a kind of shuttle diplomacy that Henry Kissinger would have recognised, putting a series of peace proposals together through the good offices of Louis VII of France and Theobald of Bois. He came back with specific peace proposals. We don't know exactly what they were, but they didn't get past stage one. Stephen havered for a while, but then rejected them before any talks could be set up around them. Stephen threw out was to show an impressive determination. He is quoted as saying, I will never be called a king without a throne. And until 1153, he doesn't waver in this at all. So it's probably best to look away from the main protagonist for the real story of 1140, because nobles and soldiers all over the country were waking up to a different world, one where the constraints of royal control were now much weaker, one where they could have a hack at getting back that bit of land they'd been after for a while, or put that local rival in their place, as they've been meaning to for years, or get a bit more money out of the church locally. We now think that it's easy to overstate all of this anarchy business, but this is a year when the anarchy is painted in the most lurid of terms by the chroniclers. This is the year when the Anglo-Saxon chronicles saints slept. William of Malm's presentry is no less dramatic. So writing of 1140, he says, The whole year was troubled by the brutalities of war. There were many castles all over England, each defending its own district, or, to be more truthful, plundering it. The knights from the castles carried off both herds and flocks, sparing neither churches nor graveyards. After plundering the dwellings of the wretched countrymen to their very foundations, they bound the owners and imprisoned them, and did not let them go until they had spent for their ransom all they possessed, or could in any way obtain. Many breathed forth their dear lives during the very tortures by which they were being forced to ransom themselves, lamenting their sufferings to God, which was all that they could do. The most hatred, though, was probably reserved for the mercenaries. What we're looking at here is over a decade of constant warfare. Neither side could keep a feudal army in the field on a continuous basis. So both had to have heavy reliance on mercenaries, and they flocked to England from abroad in search of money. So let's take a particular example and look at the career of one Robert Fitzhubert. Robert was a Fleming of good family and related to Stephen's captain, William of Epe. We don't know, but it seems probable, therefore, that he arrived in England in William's entourage, fighting on the king's side. But once he was in England and had a chance to look around, Robert began to have bigger ideas. Given the revolt, why not take this opportunity and carve out a bit of a kingdom for himself? He chose the town of Malmesbury as his perfect mini-kingdom. Malmesbury was right in the middle of the chaos, in disputed land between empress and king. 
The castle had belonged to Roger of Salisbury, but he'd just been arrested by the king. So in October 1139, Robert and his band of men took possession of the castle by what's described as a cunning ploy. We don't know how cunning and what kind of cunning. We don't know what the ploy was, but whatever it was, it worked. And Robert now had a castle for himself. He probably now expected to be able to reign in his little kingdom. And he started to build up an impressive reputation for brutality, such as burning 80 monks to death in a monastery and smearing prisoners with honey and stirring up insects to sting them to death. But to Robert's horror, Stephen appeared in front of his castle with an army. Robert was at the time in no position to withstand a siege, and he managed to negotiate with Stephen through William of Epe. So, OK, Stephen promised him his freedom if he'd opened the castle up to him, and Robert gratefully accepted. From Stephen's point of view, remember, he now had a whole lot of castles to take. Some of them could take months to reduce, and he could be dead of old age before things were settled. So any quick way of getting a castle back was something to be taken quickly. But we've not finished with Robert. He pops up again in March 1140. This time, his equally cunning ploy gained him the royal castle at Devizes, which was a great prize. Robert of Gloucester approached him, but Robert wasn't interested in joining a faction. He wanted to be his own faction, please. At this point, the Marshall family join our story. John the Marshall was the father of a man who will become familiar to you over the next 70 years or so, William Marshall. It looks as though Robert began to cast around for local allies, and John was just such a prospect. So he arranged to meet John, who gave him safe conduct to his castle at Marlborough. But once there, John threw him into a narrow dungeon and set about persuading him to give up devises. Robert stoutly refused, and indeed he continued to refuse despite being presented to his band in front of the walls of devises and being told to open the gates or else he'd get it. He agreed. He'd agreed beforehand with his band that they should not open the gates whatever happened, and they obeyed him. So John hanged Robert and left his body swinging from the gallows in front of the gates. Robert's men then agreed to leave for a tidy sum. The whole story is quite instructive. At one level, it's an example of the chaos of the reign. You can't imagine this happening in the reign of Henry I. But at another level, isn't it interesting that the forces of law and order do put Robert in his place pretty quickly, whether through the direct action of the king or the local lords. There are boundaries and limits to the level of chaos here, and outsiders coming in and eating the local nobility's lunch was definitely one of them. The deadlock established in 1140 was broken at Lincoln. The king had recently granted Lincoln to the enormously powerful Ranulph of Chester. Ranulph's allegiance was very much in doubt, and if he changed sides, it would represent the first really major defection to the empress outside of her immediate family. So Stephen had given Lincoln to Ranulph to keep him sweet, but at some point he also demanded that the castle be manned with royal guards. Now this wasn't that unusual, but Ranulph didn't like it one little bit. Stephen's handling of Ranulph and other key magnates in general is one of the main questions about his competence. Certainly, it's the skill that's right at the top of the medieval king's job description. Ranulph was very clearly not an easy bloke to manage. You might say that Stephen could have handled him better. Certainly, he really annoyed him by giving Carlisle to David, King of Scots. And Stephen does clearly build up the power of the Beaumont brothers in the Midlands as a bulwark against Chester, which didn't escape Ranulph's notice. But look, this is clearly a massively difficult situation, and after all, there are baronial revolts in all of the Norman king's reigns. But the difference here is that a civil war gave an unusually strong incentive for any independently-minded baron to revolt, far above and beyond what Henry and Rufus had to deal with. In Stephen's reign, your bid for independence actually had a decent chance of success, especially if you could play one party off against the other. So I don't think Stephen's record is by any means as bad as it's been written. 
and we should give him a bit of a break, poor lamb. Throughout this whole episode, really, the vast majority of barons stay loyal to Stephen. On the other hand, this is his job. No one forced him to usurp the throne, and there are a number of specific magnates, Ranulf of Chester, Nigel of Ely, and Geoffrey of Mandeville in particular, that he doesn't manage very well. Anyway, one day in 1141, when many of the king's household knights were away, the Countesses of Chester and Rumair appeared at the castle of Lincoln, and they started chatting and laughing to the guards and the knights. Then Ranulf and three of his knights rocked up, apparently to escort them home when they suddenly snatched up crowbars, laid around the guard and made sure nobody closed the gates. Rumer himself then appeared with a large body of knights and suddenly it was all over. Chester had revolted against the king and Lincoln was held against him. This was really significant for the engine inside, a major coup, and it was equally scary for the royal side. Stephen, with his normal energy, was quickly outside the walls of Lincoln with an army. The Angevins and their new ally, Ranulf, put together a force that marched to its relief, with an army that looks to have been significantly larger than that of Stephen's. The two armies faced each other on the 2nd of February, 1141. The Angevins were drawn up in the three traditional battles, left, centre and right, with a large contingent of Welsh brought along by Ranulf's alliance with the Welsh princes. Stephen dismounted with his household knights with a screen of cavalry at the front. The hostilities seemed to have started with individual jousting between some of the knights, but at some point the royal cavalry attacked the Welsh of both wings. At first this seemed to be a good thing, with the Welsh leaving the field, but as the struggle went on, Ranulf and Miles of Chester counter-attacked with their own cavalry, and the royal cavalry, deeply engaged with the Welsh, were completely routed, and their captains... Anne of Pontiev and William of Ypres fled the field. At this point, all six of Stephen's earls seems to have decided that it was time to bow out. Warren of Moulin, William of Warren, Gilbert of Clare joining the general exit. There's no implication of cowardice here, and they worked hard to persuade Stephen to leave as well, and at this point there can be little doubt that would have been the clever thing to do. But Stephen stayed right where he was. Stephen's household knights in the centre were now being attacked on all sides, and the king gave a good account of himself in the finest warrior king tradition. His enemies, it is said, recoiled from his arm, while Stephen fought like a lion, grinding his teeth and foaming at the mouth like a boar. His sword broke, so he borrowed a battle axe from one of the men of Lincoln and kept on hacking away. His attackers were in something of a difficult position now. This was clearly the king, and killing the king was not in the European tradition, as it happens. After all, he was anointed by God, wasn't he? It's an interesting thought, actually, isn't it? If he'd been a Roman emperor now, he'd have had a knife sticking out of his ribs pretty quickly. Anyway, they solved the problem by having one of their number creep up behind him and bring a rock crashing down onto his helmet, which knocked him out. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. So the king was captured. He was taken to the Empress at Gloucester, and given Matilda's reputation, I would guess that had to be an interesting interview. Much to Stephen's disgust, and to the Empress's supporters' embarrassment, the king himself was then put in chains at Bristol. The situation was thus immediately and completely transformed. 
Here was Matilda's big chance. So now again, we know all about the script at this point, do we not? The gates of Winchester and London must be opened, and the church must perform a coronation. But wait, don't we have a king already? So Matilda had a problem I can't recall as having met before. The simple matter that we've already got one of those, thanks. What's the process of dethroning? Later centuries will get much better at this, but there's simply no rule book to cover this at the moment. But initially things go pretty well for the Empress. She started off with Henry of Blois' papal legate as she travelled towards Winchester. You would imagine that her chances of persuading Henry to come to her side would be impossible. After all, he is the brother of the king and so closely associated with his rise to power. But not a bit of it. In a stunning display of brotherly love and real politic, the Empress and Henry met in a field outside Winchester where he signed up to the new realities. The treasurer of Winchester was open to her contents, one crown, nothing else. And at a ceremony at the cathedral, Henry, in the words of John of Worcester, cursed those who cursed her, blessed those who blessed her, excommunicated those who were against her, and absolved those who submitted to her. His justification for bringing the church to the empress's side was that, through his defeat, God had showed that he had withdrawn his favour from Stephen. Though it's also worth noting that the Pope never withdrew his support. So the second objective, coronation, was beginning to look like a shoe-in. Just London now to crack. Delegates duly arrived from London, sent by what was described as the Commune of London. You'll remember that Stephen had been a bit of a hit in London because he'd tacitly seemed to accept the idea of this Commune thing, without ever actually conceding anything. London hadn't given up on the idea, and as yet it hadn't given up on the idea of Stephen either. There were two people who stand out for a loyalty award from Stephen's point of view. His wife Matilda and his mercenary captain William of Ypres. They remained in the field and continued to win public sympathy for Stephen. So London's representatives had with them a letter from Queen Matilda asking in emotional terms for the king to be released, which they read out while Henry, meanwhile, was objecting and trying to stop them. But despite this, from the Empress's point of view, slightly disappointing approach, they did agree to put the Empress's case to the London Council. Matilda's progress to London now looks like a victory parade, to Wilton, Reading and London, where after a very slow progress and further negotiations at St Albans, she arrived in June. She set up a permanent court at the Palace of Westminster, outside the walls of London, and began to tie up support. Now an essential figure here was a man called Geoffrey of Mandeville. He was the Earl of Essex, with a lot of land around London, and crucially he was also the custodian of the Tower of London. So Matilda bought him, with a grant of extensive privileges and rights, and she also made an appointment to the vacant Bishopric of London. It's got to be said that the court around her looks a bit sorry in terms of the number of magnates attending it, but it was very much bolstered by the arrival of David, King of Scots, and the whole flavour of events now does give the sense of a job done the negotiations with Queen Matilda begin to be about how they would persuade Stephen to give up the throne, and if his son Eustace will be allowed to inherit his lands. Tacitly, most of England's barons appear to go along with the idea that the Empress will now be in control, and Stephen's rule is over. But Matilda, meanwhile, gives everything a flat no, by the way. No attempt to build a negotiated settlement. It's all or nothing. It's quite clear that the chroniclers have a bit of a personal problem here. Most of them support Matilda, with the exception of the jester Stefani. But Matilda very clearly fluffs her big chance. 
So to explain away the failure, there's a bit of the traditional church misogynist typecasting of the Empress. But even bearing this in mind, the Empress displays the diplomatic skills and sensitivity of a rhino. She stops listening to her advisers and treats them in the manner of an autocratic Empress. In the words of one of the chroniclers, rebuffing them by an arrogant manner according to her arbitrary will. She demanded attacks from the Londoners and goes into an absolute blaze of fury when they claim to be skint. She threatened to devastate their properties and reduce them, in her words, to a habitation for the hedgehog. Now, it has to be said, there's a perfectly good reason for the tax. Matilda both wants the money and wants to establish quite clearly that there'll be no talk of this commune rubbish while I'm around in charge, thank you very much. But the timing really isn't great. Queen Matilda appeared on the south bank of the Thames with an army and started to plunder the surrounding countryside. A crown wearing is planned for the Empress and the Londoners realise that if this goes ahead, they're probably stuck with her. And the dam of resentment burst and the Londoners rose up in arms. The bells of the city's churches rang out and called the mobs to arms. The mobs screamed out of the city and down the strand. Matilda was having a feast when the report came in and she and her entourage legged it with no time to prepare so that when the mob arrived the food itself was still warm. The Empress rode hard to Wallingford and to her most loyal supporter Brian Fitzcount and then on to Oxford. The Empress doesn't give up and throughout this period she uses her enhanced position to establish her own men as far as she can in opposition to Stephen's supporters. As we said earlier, Stephen had set up new earls to take the fight to the Empress and Matilda sets up her own supporters in opposition. So William of Beecham in Worcester, Baldwin de Redvers in Devon, William de Mahoon in Somerset and Dorset. But things are in fact slipping away from her. Henry of Blois had not been pleased by the way the Empress had treated him and he met with the Queen at Guildford and turned his coat back the other way. As Queen Matilda was admitted back into London, Geoffrey of Mandeville likewise declared that he'd never really meant to desert Stephen and that yes, he was back on board the boat again. Henry of Blois took immediate action now on his brother and sister-in-law's behalf. The Empress had been denied her coronation, thrown out of London. All that remained of her royal stuff was Winchester and the war now centred very firmly on control of this capital, and it was here that the Empress's big chance was to finally disappear into smoke. As Bishop of Winchester, as well as Papal Legate, Henry held a castle in Winchester called Wolsey Castle. He now prepared Wolsey for a siege, and set his own men to besiege the royal castle in Winchester, which was of course held by the Empress. The Empress upsticks from Oxford and came down in fury with her army to Winchester to break the siege, and as she came through one gate... Henry left by the other. The Empress settled in to besiege Wolsey, but meanwhile Queen Matilda and William of Ypres arrived with their own army and blockaded the whole town. The Empress was now in a complete mess. No food or resources could get through to her. And on the 2nd of August, even the resources of the town were denied to her when Henry started a fire that ripped through the town. With easy access, the Royalist party was sitting pretty and sent out warring parties to destroy any Angevin centres that might send help to the Empress. What followed was a dramatic breakout that reset the dials to zero. By September 1141, the Angevins realised that their situation in Winchester was hopeless, and that they had to get out before they were forced to surrender. Amazingly, it's quite possible that they had Henry of Bois' help in their plans, with Henry making sure that a route was left open for them to use. Brian Fitzcount's opinion of Henry reaches down to us through the centuries, through some of his letters. 
He describes Henry as a man who, and I quote, had a remarkable gift of discovering that duty pointed in the same direction as expediency, which I'm sure you'll agree is rather a nice line. It's a bit difficult to be entirely sure about Henry's motives if he was involved, but it could simply be that he saw a chance to end a stalemate. So on the 14th of September, Brian Fitzcount and Reginald of Cornwall waited with the Empress to make a breakout. Meanwhile, Robert of Gloucester started a faint attack to draw the Royalist army away from this breakout, and the Angevins ran for it through the open route. Robert's feint now turned into a rearguard action to give the Empress as much time as possible to escape. Great play is made of the fact that the Empress was forced to ride astride her horse rather than side-saddle, as was the style for women at the time. The Royalists charged after them in pursuit. Meanwhile, Robert and the Angevin rearguard turned on their pursuers at a river crossing to give Matilda more time to escape. In this, Robert was successful. Matilda made it to John Marshall's castle at Lugashaw, and then got to Devizes and was carried exhausted in a litter to Gloucester. But it also meant, unfortunately, that the escape turned into a rout. Many of the leading figures of Matilda's faction did manage to escape. Miles of Gloucester managed to break out. David, the King of Scots, was captured three times, but each time managed to bribe his captors and escape. At Wherwell, William of Epe caught up with John the Marshal, who took refuge in the nunnery. The Royalists simply fired the building and most of those trapped inside ran out to surrender. John stayed as long as possible, so long, in fact, that the lead from the roof melted and dripped down inside, blinding him in one eye. The Royalists gave him up as dead, and he was able to stagger home to Marlborough. But Robert of Gloucester, in practical terms the leader of the Angevin cause, did not get away, and was taken by the Royalists to Rochester. Now here now was a perfect opportunity to make peace. Each party had a crucial counter with which to bargain. You might think that Matilda still had the upper hand. After all, the guy she had was the king. But she clearly felt completely unable to continue without Robert. So negotiations began. They spent some time trying to make this into a permanent arrangement, but Robert wouldn't have it, even when they offered him a regency for Stephen. So in the end, the best they could come to was a simple exchange of prisoners in November. And so we're back to the status quo ante. On the 7th of December, Henry of Blois quite shamelessly convened a church council, and brought the church back to its original position of support for Stephen. Look, he said, it's not my fault. We were forced into supporting the Empress, and she's failed to live up to her promises, so you can see that God's changed sides again. So, all out, brothers, it's back to Stephen. But his reputation clearly took a hard knock. A letter from the Pope was read out, where the Pope made it clear that Henry should have done more to help Stephen. Also, a representative from the Empress was there, who referred to a series of letters Henry had written to Matilda while she was still in Normandy, encouraging her to come to England, all of which made Henry's advice to Stephen to let the Empress out of Arundel look more than a bit suspicious. Henry did not come out of the whole affair looking good, and his role as papal legate was not to be renewed in 1143. Stephen and his Queen celebrated by reconfirming their position with a re-coronation at Canterbury by Archbishop Theobald, 1141 had been a turbulent year. The chroniclers once again start by saying how much chaos the situation creates. Stephen's capture inevitably meant a gap in royal authority, which many nobles took local advantage of. The Empress's party in England was stronger in terms of territory than at the start of the year. She had gained territory in the south-west, and despite David's involvement in a rout at Winchester, he was in firm control of the north of England. But the Empress had had her big chance 
and she'd never get one as good again. She had royally, imperially fluffed it. Next week we'll hear about how the anarchy is finally brought to an end, to bring in surely one of the most fascinating dynasties in England's history, and a period of change that laid the fundamental basis of England's political and judicial systems. So once again, thanks very much everybody for listening, and I hope you'll join me again next week. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.